Good day, my friends, and welcome to the Craig Shapiro Tennis Podcast. Today's show is brought to you by the legendary Sergio Tacchini, the brand worn by John McEnroe, Goran Ivanisevic, Novak Djokovic, and Gabriela Sabatini. Listen, when I was a kid, we couldn't even buy Tacchini. It was aspirational, and now it's available worldwide, and I honestly cannot think of a greater gift for a tennis fan, a player, or if you just get a friend, one of the iconic track suits or a t-shirt from the Paris Masters, you cannot go wrong. Check them out at SergioTacchini.com and use the code CRAIG30 in all caps to receive 30% off of your order. He grew up in Nassau, the Bahamas, and alongside Andre Agassi and Jim Courier, honed his craft under the tutelage of the high-performance team at the Boletary Academy. After an illustrious career at UC LA, he turned pro. He reached the top 100 in singles, beating Gustavo Querton and Marcelo Rios, to name a few. But it was doubles where he reached tremendous heights, winning 52 doubles titles, including the French, the Australian, and the U.S. Open. He is now a broadcaster for the Tennis Channel. Mark Knowles is today's guest. Hang on a second, man. So you're in Austin, Texas, or Dallas, Texas? I'm in Dallas, Texas, headed to Bahamas tomorrow. And you guys got freezing cold, incredible freezing weather. Yeah, now now we're good. But two weeks ago, we had this like polar vortex come through Texas, and it, it wiped everybody out pretty solid with like busted pipes and flooding, and so houses are a wreck. Now your house got ruined. I mean, yeah, it's it's pretty much down to the studs. A lot of flooding. Flooding. Yeah, from bursted pipes inside, you know, so got the ceiling, the floors, all that type of, type of stuff. Come on, man. You got to be kidding me. They're not used to that kind of weather like you guys up in Northeast, you know? Brother, you're from the Bahamas. That's not supposed to happen to you. I know. I, I don't know what I'm doing here. I, I need to spend more time in the islands. I'm heading there tomorrow. <laughs> Gentlemen, you hear, you know, is one of the really one of the most well-liked and, and, and had a very storied and interesting tennis life. He distinguished himself as a standout junior. Then he went to UCLA, where he is, sits in the Hall of Fame and was former world number one doubles player, did a lot of damage on in doubles, and that is Mark Knowles, uh, the great Bahamian, right? I mean, you got it. Is there a better Bahamian tennis player? I mean, that's not really for me to say, but um, yeah, I mean, obviously I had a, a very good career and we don't have a ton of them coming out of the Bahamas, but, you know, I'm proud of my, my brother, Roger Smith as well, who, who did a lot of great things on the tour. Roger um, Smith. Mark Merklin did a few good things as well. We played some Olympics together. So, you know, um, I think we got, we got a couple good studs there. Ryan Sweetings from the Bahamas originally, former U.S. Open junior champion. So, you know, we've had some good guys. Timothy Neely, who won the Orange Bowl. Um, so we had a couple good players. Oh, man, I feel like I just did a disservice to the, all the Bahamians just now. But uh, you, still are, you still are the greatest of them all. Man, it's good to see you. It's been a while. It's been a long time, Craig. You're, you're my man. We go way back. So I've been listening to a lot of your podcasts. you got a, a lot of legends on, man. I, I'm honored that you uh, finally found some space for me on the show. <laughs> man, as you know, we do a five-set format. The first set is the off-the-court report. I think we just started this, man. You, in addition to being in what's probably become like a mid-level lockdown 
just had your house wrecked. You're just going to bounce to the Bahamas and, and wait it out over there yeah, to, get know, your, to get your place fixed? I spend my time between Bahamas and, and Dallas, Texas, and, you know, the homes here aren't built for that type of stuff. So we had a lot of pipes bursting, a lot of flooding. So um, our house in Dallas is down to the studs. So um, it's, been, it's been rough, man. I'm learning a lot more. You know, when you, you spend your whole life focusing on a yellow tennis ball, you don't know anything about drywall and insulation and flooring and all these things. So I feel like I'm getting a, a crash course on, on home remodeling. It's like that. You really are in it now, it sounds like. Yeah, I mean, I'd probably, I think, if I think back to my career, I might rather be in a fifth set tiebreaker right now. It might, might be easier to navigate. A hundred percent easier than what it sounds like. Yeah. You know what? Let's get right into it. Let's move into the second set. It's the on the court report. You know, I know you keep an eye on pro tennis significantly. What are your perceptions of uh, the women's side of things as we moving into, you know, I guess Miami is, is right around the corner. Everybody's in the Middle East at the moment. Have you, has anything kind of sort of tickled your fancy? Yeah, I mean, I think we're at an interesting point in the women's game, right? There, there's been such incredible dominance from one of the greatest athletes of all time in Serena Williams. And and, you know, there, I think there'd been a little bit of an adjustment period there for a couple of years where we saw some players break through, but ne weren't necessarily comfortable with the success when you think of the Muguruthas and so forth. And now you see Naomi Osaka, who seems like she is more than willing to take over that mantle. And, you know, she's young, she's athletic, she's an incredible, incredible athlete. So it's really exciting times. And then, you know, you think just before the pandemic, with the all-around play of Ash Barty, I mean, she's just so much fun to watch her style of play. Obviously, the pandemic has kind of limited her schedule, and, you know, she came back. Well, it seems to me, just to stop you for a second, it seems to me like essentially she took the year off. Yeah, I mean, I mean, pretty much so, you know, and you feel for the Australians, right? I mean, the, the lockdown was pretty severe for them. Um, they were able to contain the virus, as we just saw during the Australian Open, pretty well. But, you know, it, it's, a tough, it's, it's a tough gig for the Australians as it is in normal circumstances because they're on the road for most of the year. I don't, I don't think most fans realize how tough it is on the Aussies traveling the international circuit um, on the men's side and the women's side. So, you know, ultimately, like you said, we didn't get to see her much over the last 12 months, but I'm sure we'll get to see a lot more of her um, in the next coming months, so, which will be great. You know, and then Petra Kvitova just won a title. She's always fun to watch, big lefty with penetrating ground strokes. So I tell you what, the women's game is very exciting right now. I kind of felt like Jen Brady was somebody who, and Jesse Pegula, uh, both those two players kind of looked like the future. <laughs> I tell you what, I mean, I, I'm obviously a little biased. Um, having gone to UCLA and to see Jen Brady, to see the progression she's made over the last couple of years is awesome, quite frankly. I mean, it's a, it's a great testament. It's a great learning lesson for the young kids out there. You know, she's worked extremely hard. She made the sacrifice uh, to move over to Germany, work over there. Uh, her coach, Michael Gieser, somebody I knew from back in my playing days, great guy. You know, she's, she's really become focused and determined. And, you know, credit to her. She's gotten the results. And, you know, I, I feel a little sentimental value there because uh, I had just retired. I was working for the Pac-12, 
and I covered a UCLA women's tennis match. And I remember watching her play. I think she was playing number two singles at the time. And I was watching her play going, I don't know if she understands how good she really is. Because yeah. I was watching her style of play thinking, this girl could be a really good professional. And I remember talking to a few people, her coach at the time, Stella Sampras, and, you know, they weren't necessarily, she didn't really have the belief back then, but boy, did I see the potential. So, you know, I, I'm just kind of thrilled to see how well she's doing and, and she's going to continue to do even better. And, and she is you know, wicked And also good. for Jessica to yeah. kind of raise her level in Australia. I mean, she's going to another level. She's exciting to watch, powerful player. So, you know, some more Americans to be excited about on the women's side. Can you tell me other anything else about this, this Jen Brady, Germany situation? Like, how, who is the, who is the guy? Who is Geisert? He was a player well, on yeah. tour, huh? Yeah, Michael Gesser. He's a quiet guy. I mean, you know. Well, how do you say his name? I say Gesser, but, you know, I used to call him all kinds of things. So, Gesser. Um, I, I don't know which one's the correct. He was a good buddy of mine, so super nice guy. Um, but, you know, he's done a great job. He's done a masterful job. And, you know, credit Jen Brady because, obviously, we know how hard it is for Americans sometimes to go to Europe to get out of their comfort zone. And, you know, she – she went and took the off seasons to go over there, train, you know, find a good trainer along with her coach. And she put in the hard yards and, you know, the proof is in the pudding. She's been on fire since uh, we, we returned to play. This guy's got her cracking, man. He's got her, you know, I had not heard of him and I like to think I usually know some things, but like, you know, the whole story is wild. I mean, I mean, for a college player to, like link with a, a German coach and then get down to business. And she's buying into his program because she changed her body. And I thought she was the best athlete on tour. The, those weeks in Australia, I didn't think there was a better athlete. Yeah. I mean, she, if you look at her style of play, you know, it kind of reminds you a little bit of Sam Stozier when you think about how much, how effective she can be with the serve, but she's got a bigger forehand. And like you said, her movement, I mean, she, I, I would think that she would assess that that was a liability at the start of her career, and she's really turned it into a strength. So, you know, I mean, it, it's always the beautiful thing between a player coach, right? You know, people want to try to classify and determine who's a great coach. The bottom line, a, a great coach is one who can connect with their player and get their player to buy in. And, in this particular instance, you'd have to say that Michael's done a superb job and full credit to Jen Brady buying into the, to the process. Buying into the program. It sounds like the Miami tournament is in such shambles that a lot of these top players are not going to play from what I'm gathering, that the prize money is down the tubes. But moving into the clay, I mean, the big question is, I think, for a lot of people, can Novak win the French Open? Well, I mean, there's no question that Novak can win the French Open, right? And, and like you said, that's probably – that's the biggest mountain to, to try to get over when you talk about winning the calendar Grand Slam for him. Obviously, he's become incredible on grass, and he's the best hardcore player in the world. So the U.S. Open is, is a mere formality as long as he, he doesn't get in any trouble um, emotionally. Um, but, you know, I, I'm not going to bet against Rafael Nadal. I mean, he is just – he you know – we, we've seen the dominance of Novak Djokovic down under at the Australian Open, but the dominance that Rafa has on clay 
we've never seen anything like it. I'm not sure we'll ever see anything like it. Um, you know, he's just head and shoulders above everybody else. I mean, it, it takes, listen, you know, of course Novak can win because if for some reason Rafa goes down early or possibly has an injury, then, you know, Novak's probably the second favorite. Um, he's great on clay. He's an exceptional player. Um, but, you know, things have to fall in place. I think if it's, if it's an even draw and, and Rafael Nadal's on the other side of the net, it'll be a very tough challenge. But, you know, it, it's tough to bet against any of these all-time greats. I mean, they've, they've proven us all wrong. I mean, you know, I played in the days of Pete Sampras, the legendary Pete Sampras, and I remember him chasing the, the Grand Slam tally total and thinking, yeah. gee, once he passes Roy Emerson, it's never going to be touched. And then here you have it, the very next generation, you have three guys that, aren't just touching it they're blowing it away which is you know it's outrageous those those numbers are they're hard to actually believe unless you're actually seeing it i wanted to ask you a question about the sort of proliferation of of pro players training in the bahamas who did that start with did that start with leighton what's going on because i see leighton's there and then curios is practicing there i mean guys are practicing in the bahamas is that is that something you have something to do with or no yeah, that's 100% my doing. Um, you know, it was always – I always felt that the Bahamas w was a, you know, was a great place to train. I remember back in my playing days, guys like Patrick Rafter chose Bermuda, for example. Um, but towards the end of my career, Leighton, you know, had reached out thinking about a relocation. As I mentioned, it's tough for the Aussies, right? They, they need another spot. And I directed him to the Bahamas. And, and when he got there, he was like, man, this place is amazing. I don't understand why more guys don't train here. The facilities are amazing. The weather's incredible. Proximity's nice. Airport. You can take one flight to a lot of big cities. Um, you know, there are a lot of good things about the Bahamas, um, except for just what's on the surface. So, you know, then I, I really made it my mission to kind of get some people down there. Um, there's a beautiful resort down there called Albany, where they have Albany Tennis Academy. And the facilities there are first rate. So um, when I was working with Milos Raonic, uh, had him come down. He fell in love with the place. Was like, man, this is the place to train. Um, you know, so he relocated down there to train. Then also got Denis Shapovalov down there to train as well. Um, Nick Kyrgios is down there. Uh, trying to think, Alex Dimonor comes down. Um, we had Diego Schwartzman there over the summer. So, you know, all the guys that come in are like, wow, this place is amazing to train. You know, when you when you think about elite professionals. You know, they want privacy, they want great facilities, and they want good weather. Um, so, and, and they want easy travel, and, and the Bahamas provides all of that. So I'm, I'm really pleased because I always wanted that to be a place where, where the guys could base out of and, and train in the offseason especially. And it looks like we got a good group of people uh, training out of there. So trying to get some of the females down there as well. Um, Jeannie Bouchard is the place down there. She hasn't been down there much to train. Um, and also, I think uh, the last few times I've been there, Caroline Wozniacki's been there. Obviously, she's retired, but, you know, it's good. Serena's been down a couple times, so it's, it's good to get some of, the, some of the elite stars on the men's and women's tour down there. And, and they practice at Albany. Yep, at Albany. Also, I remember a couple summers ago, we had Simona Halep down with her coach, Darren Cahill. You know, they had an amazing time. So, you know, it, it's a great place. When you think about the off-season before Australia, great place to train. You think about a nice spot before the summer hardcourt season, great place to train. So, you know, I've been really excited to see a lot of the pros come down and train. 
And and is there clay there, or is it just a strictly hard court? Uh, oh, they got hard courts and and clay as well. They don't have any red clay, but it's the hard true. Yeah. Um, but you know the hard courts are the Australian U.S. Open surface, so great place to train. Let's move into the third set. This is the portion of our show where we talk about your career. I felt like I knew you a little. I I I have distinct memories of talking with you on tour, and I have a few I'm going to share, but. I don't know you very well. Where does your tennis begin? So my tennis begun, my mom was a tennis professional. My mom's from, from England originally. Uh, you know, she played Wimbledon back in the day. She was a really good player. She moved to the Bahamas at a young age. And so I grew up in the Bahamas. Uh, she taught my dad how to play tennis. So they ran a tennis club. So I basically had a racket in my hand from the age of three, I would say. Now, what, and, what, what island did you live on? What, what, what's... Give us a, give me a breakdown. Yeah, so we lived in Nassau, Bahamas. So, you know, I, I was fortunate because my parents, like I said, ran a tennis club. Um, they probably ran the best junior program uh, that, I don't know, that I've ever seen. They had every kid in the Bahamas there. So, you know, they did a great job. Of, first of all, I loved tennis right from the beginning. For whatever reason, I would hit on the wall eight hours a day. All I wanted to do was hit tennis balls. Um, what's the name of the club your parents uh, that your yeah, parents they, were at? It started at the Emerald Beach, um, which was kind of a really nice club on the West End, and then they went to the Nassau Beach. So, but it was the Emerald Beach where the tennis really started. Um, you know, like I said, I was fortunate because a lot of my friends also played tennis, whether they were good, bad, medium, it didn't matter. The, the thing to do was to go to the the Vicky and Sammy Knowles tennis uh, camps and. Those are my parents. So, you know, that's what we did. We, we played tennis all day, every day. Tennis every day at your parents' program. Yeah, and then, you know, I was, I was fortunate from there. We used to go over and play a huge junior tournament uh, called the Orange Bowl in Miami. So at the age of, I think I had just turned, I think I was about nine. I was playing, I think, the 12 and unders. And, you know, the legendary Nick Boletari saw me playing came up to myself and my mom and, and offered us a full scholarship to go to his academy. And, you know, I was, it sounds strange for a nine-year-old, 10-year-old to be thinking this way, but I kind of knew it was my only way out. Um, you know, we didn't, we didn't come from much as a family. Uh, came from, you know, we, di we didn't have much growing up. So I, I always felt like my ticket was going to be tennis. And I was kind of driven um, at a young age. And so, you know, when the legendary Nick Boletari offered me an opportunity to go to the academy. I went to Nick Boletari's at 10 years old, um, and I loved it. It was awesome, and it was difficult. And that's a – sorry, and that's a big part of your story is is that you were, uh, you were like a sleepover, identified as major talent. You were there with Courier and Sampras and, and – sorry, and Andre, and, and why, I, I'm curious what that moment was like for you when you – you know, I don't know, you, you, you dropped your bag down at the dorm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's crazy, you know, leaving home at 10 years old, like I said, I mean, it was more, I think, my motivation. Obviously, it was hard for my parents to let me go at 10. And, you know, going to Florida from the Bahamas, and like I said, we, we didn't have that much uh, money back in the day. So I only came home, I only came home at Christmas and summer. So I, I didn't see my, my family at all. Um, and, you know, but it, it was awesome. I mean, it was a unique environment. We had, you know, Obviously, if you reflect back now, I mean, we, we didn't know where we would end up, but we, we all had this kind of purpose-driven mission, right, that we wanted to be the best tennis player we could be. Um, you know, Jim Courier, Andre Agassi, 
but the who were you there all- with? Who was your roommates? You know, what was it like there? Yeah, so I mean, I was there for seven years, so I had a lot of roommates. But for a number of the years, it was me, Courier, Agassi. You know, we were we were kind of the main three guys. I think we roomed together probably the most. Um, and there were other great players that maybe didn't go on to have incredible professional careers, but they were, you know, David Cass was number one junior in the world. Martin Blackman, head of the USTA, was an incredible player, uh, went on to a great collegiate career as well. David Wheaton, former top 10 player, was there. Chris Garner, who was an incredible player. Jimmy Brown, Ricky. I mean, you know, we, you know, if you think back, we probably had – we probably had five of the top 10 juniors in the world at every division, 12s, 14s, 16s, 18s. So, you know, you're just talking about, uh, you know, it was a real, you know, I mean, it was a battle. Every day was a competitive battle. And I think that's why you see, you know, a lot of those guys were extremely successful because honestly we were competing every single day. It was, it was kind of a Lord of the Rings environment, but you know, when I reflect back on it, I mean, those were amazing times, right? Those those were incredible. We would battle it out on the courts. Uh, you know, we'd break our fair share of rackets. We'd get emotionally charged. But And was there ever a moment in time where you were the best player? Were you better than Andre and Jim? Um, you know, they're a year older than me, so I would say no. I mean, I'd, I'd like to profess that I was the king back then, but I wasn't. <laughs> um, no, I would say that Andre and Jim were probably always a little bit better than me. And it's funny because I used to play Jim, you know, Jim's from Florida. So I got to Terriers at 10. I used to play Jim pretty much every weekend in a Florida junior tournament in the finals. And I think, I think he, he probably won all of them. Hopefully maybe I got one in there, but he'd probably tell you I didn't win any. Um, but, you know, we kind of got striking up a conversation and, you know, he realized I went to Terriers and it was like, hey, man, we became really good friends. Why don't you come over to Nick? So he came over, I think, at the age of 12 or 13. Andre came at the same time. But, you know, those guys were better than me for sure. Was there a moment where you knew you could be a pro when you were at Boletari's? And what prompted UCLA? Yeah, that's a great question. So, I mean, when you're in an environment like Boletari's, when it is just, I mean, the level of competition is off the charts. You got a bunch of kids there that all have the same mission, all have the same goal to be the best player in the world. Um, you know, we all had that goal from a young age. So, you know, I would say that, you know, like I said, I mean, I had some dreams of it, you know, as a, as a nine, 10 year old to be a professional tennis player and be number one in the world. Um, obviously once you get in the environment around the Couriers, the Agassiz, the Wheatons, um, these types of players and knowing Nick's mentality that, you know, we're not going to stop till we get to the top. Um, yeah, you, you believe you're going to be a professional the whole way. You know, we started playing, Back then, it was called Satellites. Satellites. We started playing professional events when we were 15 years old. And, uh, you know, we were out there battling with adults and, and big people. And, and we weren't backing down. I mean, you know, we, it has to be said, just being in that environment, you know, not that we were cocky, but we were just confident and kind of determined in, in our goals. And so I'd have to say we always thought we were going to be professionals. I don't think there was ever a moment where we didn't think we'd be professionals. And then, you know, for me, to answer your second question, um, we were fortunate at Boletari's because we were the best players. We had a, a Boletari traveling team, which was uh, Courier, Agassi, myself, um, Chris Garner, David Wheaton, um, David Cass, Martin Blackman, to name a few, where we got to travel. So I, I graduated high school at a young age. I was only 16 when I graduated. 
I started a little bit early. It wasn't because of in extreme intelligence. But uh, anyway, the good thing about graduating at 16 was I, I honestly felt I was a little too young to go to college. So we all played professionally for a year. Um, and so we, we went around, played professional events throughout the world. Uh, we went to Hawaii. We went to Africa. Went to some really cool places, played some events in the U.S. Um, and I think, you know, I think at the time, you know, Jim did extremely well. Andre did extremely well. So they ended up turning pro. Um, I did okay. I think I got up, uh, you know, I got some points and everything, but I felt emotionally I wasn't ready. So luckily for me, you know, one of the schools that I had always identified coming from the Bahamas and, you know, you don't hear about much uh, in the 70s in the Bahamas, but you had heard about UCLA. So it kind of was a goal in the back of my mind, like, geez, how cool would that be to go to UCLA? So, uh, you know, UCLA reached out, you know, full scholarship to come attend their their school. And, you know, it was a tough decision whether to go pro. You know, my peers, as I mentioned, Couriers, Agassiz were turning pro. But as I mentioned, I felt they were maybe a level better than I was at the time. And also emotionally, I didn't think I was ready uh, to travel internationally. So I was super excited to go to UCLA. It's funny, I, I had Patrick McEnroe on the show, and I asked him if he thought that playing college tennis hindered his pro career, and he said that he thought that he probably stayed too long, that when he got to the pros, he was woefully out of shape. He had taken his foot off the gas, in a sense, compared to the way, whatever, guys from Bulgaria that are trying to you know, make it on tour. I mean, there was, you know, he, he took his foot off the gas. Did you, what, what's your opinion of, of, of college tennis and, and how was it for you? Do you think that it affected your singles potentially? Yeah. I mean, college tennis is an interesting thing. If you're really thinking about being a top professional in the end, right. I, I think what's super important um, is to go to a school where the coach understands your professional goals. And, you know, I can kind of understand what Patrick is saying. Um, you know, I I took the fall off my after my sophomore year. I, I almost turned pro after my sophomore year. I was, you know, pretty highly ranked in college, um, but I also felt like I was ready to to turn pro. It was time. Um, I, I decided to come back because we were the number one team in the country, and I really wanted to win a national title for the team. I had that motivation. But you know, I feel that college is interesting. I, I don't regret any of it by any means. It was a great, I needed to grow emotionally and so forth. But I do think that I, I possibly didn't grow as much as I could have tennis wise. And, you know, I think it's difficult when a coach is, is managing a team with a bunch of players. It's hard to have that individualized attention where it becomes game specific, right? Where, what do I need to do in the next year or two years to become a better player so that I can make a, bigger impact on the professional tour immediately um you know similar to what patrick was saying you know between you know you got studies of course so that takes up a lot of your time you, you don't have kind of the same hyper focused maybe intensity that you would if you're just playing tennis but hey man you were like you had like an incredible college tennis career then you you turned pro that's no joke i mean to be that elite is an amazing thing yeah, I mean, I uh, appreciate it. But, you know, I mean, you know, it's a funny thing. I, I don't know if it's the same for most athletes, but, you know, you always look back and go, hey, is there something I could have done differently? Maybe if I would have left after my sophomore year, 
I ended up turning pro after my junior year. Um, could I have done this? Could I have done that? And then, quite frankly, you always want to win more, no matter what. I mean, you know, I was fortunate enough to win quite a bit on the ATP Tour, and I still want more, right? I mean, I think that's that's human nature. That's just how we're programmed. Um, you know, if you achieve X, you you want you want more. And um, so, you know, but at the end of the day, you don't want to have any regrets. You want to know that you you worked as hard as you could. Could things have you know gone a little bit differently if you changed here or there? Possibly, but. As long as you can say, hey, man, I, I gave it my all. And, you know, for myself, I know I did that. I mean, I, like I said, I've been hitting tennis balls from a very young age, extremely dedicated, extremely focused, worked hard. Um, and, you know, I did it because I loved it, which is more important. Man, I remember in 1998, I, I, I actually learned a week or two ago uh, that you lost in qualies there to Xavier Melis, who had, quali- you know, who had, it was one of his first tournaments that he played. I remember you were practicing with Pete and I was on the court because I was there stringing his rackets. And I always remember just watching and saying, man, if you put bags on their heads, you could never know who the number one player in the world was and who just lost in qualies, right? Or who was grinding. You, you have such a, I don't know, world-class, natural, beautiful strokes and game. Is your singles a disappointment? Yeah, I mean, for sure. I mean, listen, I, I've got, you know, first of all, thank you for the compliment. Um, obviously, I spent a lot of time with Pete. Um, I was kind of his punching bag in practice, so we played a lot of sets. And if, if you know Pete, he never really tried in practice, so he kind of gave 60%. But we always put we always put 100 bucks on every set. So he was nice enough to, you know, I'd win a lot of those sets, so I think he was just helping me with my expense money. <laughs> but, is that uh, a fact that you spent huge amounts of time with Pete in the 90s in that in that time? Yeah, I mean, you know, listen, Pete, we were all pretty close friends also, you know, with Jim, Pete. I mean, I think people forget how close Jim and Pete really were. They were really good buddies, played doubles together. Uh, we'd hang out a lot at tournaments. And like I said, I was I was fortunate enough. Pete would ask me to practice a lot, um, you know, you know, obviously maybe – he got along well with me and felt, you know, I think when guys choose practice partners, they, they want to feel comfortable. And, and we always had great practice sessions. You know, Pete's a quiet guy, but he's a super guy, super nice. And, um, you know, it was fun. We, we'd play for some money and it would get intense. And, you know, obviously I'd probably play my best tennis because I'm playing one of the all-time legends and you're trying to prove yourself on the practice court. So, um, you know, those were always fun times. And, you know, if I think back to my singles career, I mean, obviously I was a top hundred player, which honestly, you know, similar to yourself a lot of people thought I could have gone a lot higher um so for me yeah it was a disappointment I look back with a lot of regrets um you know I probably had the talent to be a lot um ranked a lot higher you know I had a I had a massive injury that came at just the wrong time um I broke what did I I broke the seventh vertebrae no I broke the seventh rib in my back so I ended up being out for about 11 months right when I was about top 100 and the reason it's significant is because it's funny when, you know, we were just talking about Jen Brady and, and how a player all of a sudden gets to that point where they believe in themselves, right? I, I always had people around me that said, oh, you should be top 20, you should be top 50, you should be playing with these guys. But until a player actually believes it, none of that stuff matters. And so I finally got to a point where when I was top 100, I started to believe in myself. I finally started to believe in myself that, you know what, I belong, I can beat these guys. I had a couple of top 10 wins you know, over like Rios and Kerton and, you know, it started to give me the belief. And just then 
like I said, I was injured and I was out for 11 months and I just felt like it kind of sidetracked me. I never quite got back. Um, you know, I think I got back to about 110 in the world, but I was kind of always around that area for the next couple of years and was never able to really break through. And, you know, I know also for me, I have some regrets because emotionally I was very weak. Um, and part of that, you know, listen, part of that comes from pressure. I, like I said, I, I didn't come from much. So like I said, I put a lot of pressure on myself, whether it was financially, whether it was result driven. Um, I was very hard on myself, extremely hard on myself. I mean, I was, I was, I was, you know, I was a mental wreck at times. So um, ultimately that cost me, you know, I was able to kind of, I was able to kind of get a hold of the mental side and, and really by that time I was starting to just kind of focus on doubles and it, it helped me tremendously. That's why I was able to be super successful because I was much stronger mentally. So I do have regrets. I wish I wish I was stronger mentally um, at the start of my career when I was especially just playing singles. I, I think I would have done a lot better, but you know, you, you live and learn and you try to pass on, pass on the wisdom. I just want to follow up. How did you snap a bone? Yeah. You know, that was unfortunate because I basically, I mean, long story short, I had the outside muscles were stronger than the inside muscles. And I felt this pain in my back for a couple couple weeks and then a couple months. And, you know, I talked to the trainers and said, oh, no big deal. But ultimately, what ended up happening, I was actually playing Davis Cup for the Bahamas, playing a singles match, went up to hit an overhead. And boy, it was like somebody drove the biggest knife ever in my back. I snapped the seventh rib in my back, like a legit two, I think it was about a two and a half inch break, which, you know, normally have like a hairline fracture on a break. So... It was a severe injury. It kept me out for a long time. It was, it was hard to come back from, but, um, you know. That's a long way back when you're still having that, when, you, when you're about to crack in and you're feeling good, and then you're back in qualies, your protected ranking is still, you still got to play qualies. It's not that easy. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, it, it was difficult, right? And I wasn't able to kind of navigate the road and, and get up to the top 50 where, where you know, quite frankly, I probably belonged. Dan Nestor and you had unbelievable success. Who is he to you? Yeah, I mean, geez, just what you said. I mean, he is, he's the reason for our success, right? I mean, ultimately, you know, it, it's, a, it's a funny journey because both of us were singles players, right? A um, little bit different than the guys today. Uh, most of the guys back then were all singles players. You know, Nestor, Knowles, uh, Elting, Harhus, the Woodies, you name it. So, you know, we were singles players and – you know, I think I think we played singles for the first 10 to 12 years of our career. And we happened to play a little bit of doubles. And I remember it was 1995. We were both in a tour event in Bogota. I think it was a 250. And I saw he was on the list. So I reached out to him to see if he wanted to play some dubs. And he didn't even realize he was going. So we were going there to play singles. And we played doubles. First tournament we ever played, we won it. Um, you know, we did okay in singles there as well. And so it was an easy connection because our games kind of suited each other, but our personalities, we were actually both kind of sports fanatics. I mean, we were both crazy about sports, so that was a good bond. Um, and then, you know, we, we both kind of prioritized singles first, which was important. So we were making our schedules all around singles. And, you know, we just happened to do really well in doubles. Our next tournament was the Australian Open, which was, I think, three months later. We didn't play any more doubles after winning Bogota, which was in September after the U.S. Open. And then our next tournament was the Australian Open, and we made the finals on our first Grand Slam. So, you know, the, the success was there right away. So, you know, we were able to parlay that into a very successful career. He's a quiet, quirky guy a little bit. Um, what was it like being on the court with him? 
Yeah, I mean, it's is, funny. Is he your is he is he your favorite partner? Is he... Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, we, we had the most success. Uh, I mean, I've been fortunate to play with a lot of great partners. Um, you know, Mahesh Bhupati was a great partner. You know, I got the chance to play with some great singles players as well, like Jim Courier, who, you know, he pretty much launched my career. First year out of college, uh, Jim Courier was number one in the world. Obviously, he was one of my best friends. And he said, hey, why don't you come to the Canadian Open in Montreal? So I was playing singles qualities there. And he goes, let's, let's ask for a wild card in doubles. Uh, you know, I didn't have any ranking just out of college. And sure enough, we got a wild card because he was top dog, number one in the world, and we won the whole tournament. Um, so that, that, you know, that got me started. So I'd probably be nothing without Jim, right? Um, so he's the reason for my success. My first tournament win was a Masters 1000, which was awesome. So that really catapulted me. But, you know, definitely with Nestor, you know, we had a, we had a special combination. Um, like you said, he was a quirky guy. He was a different guy. And, you know, funny stories. Before I actually played doubles with him, I used to play him in singles. And I couldn't stand the guy because he was so quiet. He was a really good player, and he just showed no emotion. So we, you know, we went on to joke about it because obviously we became good friends and, and partners and, and shared a lot of time together. But, uh, you know, he's a very quiet guy. But when you get to know him, he's probably the loudest guy you've ever met. You, you can't get him to shut up. So, um, you know, he's one of those guys perfect for radio, right? He's, he's quiet, shy, but you, you get him, give him a mic. He, he can get really loud. So, um, you know, yeah, oh, those, those special times. We, we, had, we had a lot of great memories and uh, a lot of great results. You mentioned that you were mentally shattered during at times during the career. Can you explain that? Yeah, I mean, I think, honestly, it was just pressure. I, I put so much pressure on myself. Um, like I said, whether it was result-driven, whether it was financially driven, um, you know, it, it's tough. I mean, tennis is a tough sport. I, I would never try to um, to minimize that. I mean, it, you know, you're out there on your own. You're traveling internationally. It's it's expensive. You know, if you don't have if you don't have the benefit of, of endless pockets and finances, it, it can be it can be extremely tough. And um, you know, you you have to prove yourself every day. I mean, tennis is one of those things. You could be seated one, but the other guy doesn't really care, right? You got to go out every single day improve yourself you don't have a teammate uh, essentially you know obviously talking about singles you you don't have a coach's timeout you know and that's also what makes it beautiful right it's it's the ultimate sport once you take the court with a strategy there's a good chance your opponent has his strategy and at some point you're gonna have to change your strategy and figure it out right it's the it's the ultimate lit, litmus test where you've got to figure out a way to be successful and you have to do that every single day and um Tennis is a lot about matchups too, right? You know, one day you could have a matchup where, you know, you feel really comfortable against the opponent. And then the next day you could play a guy who's ranked much lower than you, but he's got an extremely awkward game. You know, you think about guys like Fabrice Santoro, just very different guys to play, right? They can, they can be a nightmare. Um, you know, so there's so many different challenges. And I, I just think I didn't, I didn't handle adversity very well when it came to my singles career. And I think ultimately it cost me and, and I'm aware of that. And, and I, I accept that. What about the losing? You know, when you go from college and you're pretty much winning every match you play and then you start losing to, like you said, guys of all different uh, shapes and flavors and, and, and like, what's, what is that? Does that just weigh down on your head? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think, you know, there's probably a subconscious pressure, right? When you, if you reflect back on, on basically my childhood, as, as we've talked about, growing up at Bellatari's, 
you know, it's, it's basically success or nothing. Right. I mean, that's, that's our goal there. And um, obviously my peers like Agassi Courier doing extremely well, who knows how much subconsciously that put pressure on myself as well. You know, all of a sudden you're losing to a guy from Germany that you've never heard of in, in some challenger, whereas, you know, Andre and Jim are winning tour events and you're going, geez, you're looking in the mirror and going, I stink. Like what's wrong with me? <laughs> right. So, you know, the, the tough part about tennis is, you know, a lot of these team sports, you know, you can, you can say, ah, oh, geez, you know, my teammate, I played my best, but my teammates let us down or you know, the referees were horrible. You know, there, there, are lit, there are a bunch of other excuses you can use in tennis. You look in that mirror, there's no one else except your reflection. So, you know, it gives you, gives you a lot of pause to kind of take stock of yourself daily, which, which can be, which can be really tough, man. The, the tennis journey is not an easy one. It, it's, it's a great one, but it's a, it's a challenging one. Your best moment on tour? Uh, my best moment on tour actually was an easy one. Um, playing Davis cup for the Bahamas, a small country. We got to the world group relegation round and we played the United States um, you know, that was pretty cool. I was always a very patriotic person. I love my country of the Bahamas. I love my people. Um, there was no better moment than playing Davis Cup for the Bahamas, this small nation going up against, you know, a, a real Goliath. And, um, you know, we, we had tons of fans. We probably had 250 Bahamians in Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, that was, you know, that was probably one of the biggest highlights of my career. That was probably one of the most special moments. Um, you know, obviously the Grand Slam triumphs and doubles are, are very special. Those are great moments. Um, uh, we had, I think Dan and I had lost our first three Grand Slam finals. So when we ultimately won that first one in Melbourne in 2002, maybe 2002 um, yeah. you know, that was obviously a big elephant off the back. You can at least finally say I'm a Grand Slam champion. That That's huge. But um, probably Davis Cup. I think that was that was the most fun I've ever had on the tennis court. Man, it's so sad that they changed that Davis Cup up. But uh, for those of you guys that played it and for some of us that got to see some of those really high-intensity Davis Cup ties, you know, that's really kind of a disappointing thing that happened. Yeah, I mean, Davis Cup is special. I mean, we, you know, playing for the Bahamas, we, we, we had some rough ties because we played in the America zone, which, you know, for most of my career was Brazil, Chile, uh, Uruguay. I mean, there's some tough countries to play in. You talk about having some mental fortitude. I, I definitely, it's funny because way more adversity in those environments playing singles, but I was so much stronger mentally just because I knew I could never let the fans in. You know, we, we had chairs thrown at us. We had... <laughs> coins thrown at us we had people rush the court i mean i think back to those moments and they're just they're pretty wild let's move into the fourth set this is the 10 ball scramble we don't do a deep dive i just say it and you say what comes in your mind you ready yep your current racket head head forever man the red prestige is you right still got the prestige baby still forever forever still when do you start playing with that stick it's funny. So when I first turned pro, I played with the Prince Graphite 90, which was an amazing racket. My 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 buddy, Roger Smith, was using the head prestige, and he goes, dude, you got to try this. And I tried it at a Davis Cup match, and it made this swoosh sound when you accelerated. And I was like, dude, that is heaven on earth. 
and I haven't picked up another bat since. <laughs> Have not picked up another bat since. I mean, I've tried some other ones, but I, it's, it's the old faithful. I mean, I can't even, I, you know, I know modern technology with all these, you know, Babolats and so forth, but no, nah, for me, it's, it's, you hit the sweet spot with the head prestige. It's like hitting a two iron, 250 yards. It's like Marty fish. Size of your grip. Four and a half. How did you string your racket? I gut in the main, poly in the cross. Uh, obviously, originally gut, all gut, as you remember. You used to string my bats as well as anybody. <laughs> um, but, you know, as, as technology changed, gut in the mains and uh, poly in the cross. And I always strung pretty tight. Uh, you probably remember that. I, I strung a lot tighter than most people. Where do you keep your trophies? My mom's house. And your mom was prominent on tour. Did she travel with you? Was that was she prominent on tour with you, or was she doing other stuff? No, she traveled a lot with me. She she traveled a lot with me. Obviously, she still was running the tennis club, but you know she was an important role model, important. I mean, a huge part of my career. I mean, she was gave me tremendous support and traveled as much as she could. Did you save your credentials? Uh, no, I've saved my kids' credentials though. Some of those for for their little memory book. So you just huck them? You would just like leave the tournament and just throw them in the trash? Yeah, unfortunately, yes. Your greatest win? Greatest win. Jeez, it should have been Agassiz in San Jose. It was up a break in third. Couldn't close him out, the dirty dog. Um, <laughs> greatest win? I beat Marcelo Rios at Wimbledon. Uh, that's probably a big win. Um, obviously, he was a great player, but... Also, he was he was a tough tough character. So that tough was out. kind of a, that was a tough. Was a, probably probably my best singles win was Marcelo Rios. And what about in doubles? Is there a match that was your great? Like you guys just had a world class. Um, I mean, obviously there had there had to be one. Um, trying to think. Uh, I don't know, man. It's hard. I I won. I won I won three three men's doubles, but I lost eight. So I probably have more bad memories than good memories. And and two, I think two of those we had match points. So ah, uh, geez, best win. Oh, I don't. Know. That's a okay. Hard one. We can pass. Uh, is there a worse loss? Is there one that you just can't really get? At? Like, does the one that just pops up in your dreams? Yeah, I mean, the, it was the 1998 U.S. Open final. Uh, we were playing against Stolly Souk. Um, we had a we had a we had a touch the net incident um, uh, by Daniel by Nestor. Unfortunately, um, we had two match points. I mean, it was it was it's one that I still wake up in in a in a just cold sweat occasionally and can't get back to sleep and start looking for the whiskey bottle. Player you love to just pistol whip. Was there someone out there that you just couldn't lose to no matter what? Um, yeah. I'm trying to think. I know in singles there was somebody I could never beat, and that was Richie Renenberg. That guy beat me all the time. Um, you so could never beat Richie Renenberg. I don't think so, man. That guy, he had the perfect game <laughs> to beat me, man. He he was so tough, returned so well. He was so good. We, we joke about it still, um, but he's such a humble guy. Um, I do remember in doubles, there was one guy, Simon Aspelin from Sweden. Yeah. I think he will tell you, I think he's 0-20. I think I beat him 20 for 20 times. 
So, and, and he, he's the nicest guy in the world, but I just, I could never let him win. You could never be, you could never lose to him. Now, no. uh, who is the best doubles player in the world today? Wow. That's a really good question. Um, I mean, I think right now at the top of the rankings, you have the Colombians, uh, Cabal and Farrar. I mean, you'd have to say, you know, obviously the pandemic has changed things a little bit. Um, you know, you have to say Jack Sock was pretty, pretty close to the top with his results, the run there. Um, best doubles player in the world today. Part of me thinks Bruno Suarez is the best doubles player there is and that everybody should partner with Bruno. That's a great, uh, that's a great answer. I mean, he's, he's done well with everybody, right? Like the guy's, he is the ultimate partner. Cool as, cool as a cucumber. So that's a good answer. Is there a best doubles player ever? Is there a guy that you just couldn't believe how good he was? Was there someone on the court that there was you just never? I mean, could... I, I think personally, I mean, you know, I, I I didn't play against him, but I practiced with him a bazillion times. I think John McEnroe is the greatest doubles player of all time. In in my era, which I played against some of the greatest of all time, when you think about the Eltingharus, the Woodies, the Bryans, um, I would just say that it, it's hard to. I mean, those guys are all great. But I'm going to say Todd Woodbridge on grass was probably – he's one – that's one that just stands out. The guy was a magician on grass. Your favorite tournament? My favorite tournament was Wimbledon. Um, can't beat it. It's You're the prestige, the tradition. My mom's British. I, I grew up drinking the milk, everything, strawberries and cream. I went there at the age of – Bjorn Borg was my idol growing up. Since my mom was a player from England, she got us access when I was nine years old, I believe, 1981. Borg had won five in a row. All I wanted to see was Borg drop to his knees. That's all I wanted to see. We went to the finals, had tickets. Johnny Mack was too tough that day. I think he went ahead. I walked out to, like, court 13. I was, I was crying. I was miserable. I couldn't believe Borg wasn't going to win. Borg didn't win. I didn't get to see him drop to his knees. Mack beat him that day. Wimbledon, man, unbelievable. The, the most cavalier thing you did with prize money, right out of the office. The most, you know, like the most buck wild thing you ever did. I didn't do too many well. I mean, I was a pretty conservative guy. As I said, money was very tight growing up. I, I probably tucked that thing as close to me as possible all the time. <laughs> Come on, man. You never just went right to the car dealership. You never had a nothing. No, but took, I mean, I, I will say, you know. You never took mixed up, doubles money and did, like, bought a, you know, I don't know, bought a boat? No. No no impulse buys. But I will say that, um, you know, growing up in the Bahamas, my, my, my goal and my determination was to buy a boat. So the first thing that I did splurge on, I bought a boat before a car, if you can believe that. <laughs> That's tremendous. I had a boat in the Bahamas. I was still taking the bus around, but I had a boat. <laughs> Let's move into the fifth and final set. You call this the king of the court. If you could be the king of tennis and make a change in the sport, what would it be? Um, you know, could be rules, could be schedules, could be. It's gonna be. It's gonna be a controversial one. That one that I've talked to with a lot of legends, being Federer, the Roddicks, and they don't like it at all. I would make no ad scoring in singles, but I would give the choice rather than to the receiver as it is in doubles i would give the choice to the server so they don't lose that advantage 
I think it would be awesome to create a, even more suspense. Listen, I love tennis as much as anybody. I love the epic matches. I think it's very hard to be in front of a TV for six hours. Um, just the way society is going, uh, you know, we have so much at our fingertips. You know, I'm I'm not a big uh, uh, European football fan, so soccer, as we call it, in North America. But I will tune in to penalty kicks any day of the week, and I know people the the true followers of those sports hate penalty kicks, right? So hey, I hey, I know man. it's going against the grain, but hey, give us a few more um, suspenseful points. Give us a little more action. I'm for that. What'd you think of the, 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 the quick sets, the four, two sets, the four game sets? Yeah, I'm probably not a huge fan of that. Um, I, I like the tradition traditionary, uh, the traditional six game sets, but throw a little no ad in there. Make it exciting. Mark Knowles with a no ad. Hey man, you know, uh, I'm glad we finally had an opportunity to do this. It's, you know, it's funny. I was, I was trying to get you and I was having a, I was having a trouble. And then we, then I, we ran into each other. You were going to get credentials for your family at the U S open and the security lady shut you down. She said, you know, you don't have a badge. I said, well, no, no, he won this. You got to let him through. <laughs> well, we, we saw the other day, I think they asked better for his badge. So I guess I shouldn't feel so bad. Right. But the reality is Craig, you know it, man, the minute you retire, everybody forgets about you, man. <laughs> so thanks for know, having man. me on the show and making me relevant again. <laughs> Mark Knowles. Now, um, your your tennis channel and your you sit on the ATP board. Yep. Still doing tennis channel. Love it. I uh, love broadcasting. Love covering the sport. And been fortunate to be on the board of the ATP for the last eighteen months. Obviously, been a challenging time during the pandemic, but you know it's allowed me to stay close to the game. You know, since retirement, I coach Marty Fish, Milos Raonic, Jack Sock. I, I love the game of tennis. I always want to be involved. I always want to be around it. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's given me the life that I have. So I want to continue to get back. Hey, man, I'm going to be in Antigua next week. Maybe I can buzz over to the Bahamas and uh, come see the Albany Club and see what that's all about. We'll have to figure that one out one day. I like it, man. Let's do it. Let's plan on it. Mark Knowles, can't thank you enough. And you are released. Thanks, buddy. Good to see you, Craig. All the best. Huge thank you to Mark Knowles and thank you to Sergio Tacchini. See them at SergioTacchini.com and use my code CRAIG30 in all caps to receive 30% off of your order. If you have not yet done it, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts and share the show with your friends. Max Loeb edited the show. Our music is by Brian Senti. We'll be back next time with more of the most interesting voices in the sport. Until then, I'm Craig Shapiro and you are released.